This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You should be labeled with a skull and a crossbones. Oh, you're a jinx to my soul. Oh, yeah, you should be labeled with a skull and a crossbones. Oh, you're a jinx to my soul. Oh, yeah. Well, you're a man as to wear my batter hoping up a prison. Cause you look like a child of driving everyone wild. <laughs> a big hexamanza, a raw bones, I said. A big hexamanza, a raw bones. More sighs, my heart moans. Then it cries and then it groans. It should be labeled with a skull hand with crossbones. Well, you're a jinx to my soul. Oh, baby, should be labeled with a skull hand with crossbones. Cause you're a jinx to my soul. Oh, yeah. Well, you're a man as to him about her half in the prison. Cause you look like a child driving everyone wild. You should be labeled with a skull and a cross of bones Well, you're a jinx to my soul, a jinx to my soul Well, you're a man as to him, a matter of up a prison Cause you look like a child of driving everyone wild A big hexa means a cross of bones, I said A big hexa means a cross of bones My heart sighs, my heart moans Then it cries and then it groans you should be labeled with a skull and a crossbow. Oh, you're a jinx to my soul. Oh, yeah, you should be labeled with a skull and a crossbow. You're a jinx to my soul. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're a man as to wear a batter half in the prison. Cause you look like a child of love and everyone wild. <laughs> You're listening to the Electric Sheep Magazine podcast. I'm Alex Fitch, Assistant Editor of Electric Sheep Magazine, and this is the second half of a broadcast clear spot forming part of our monthly show on Resonance 104.4 FM in London. Our opening music to celebrate that it was recently Halloween was Skull and Crossbones by Sparklemore with Dan Belloc and his orchestra. Later in the show, you'll hear Electric Sheep magazine editor Virginie Selavy talking to cartoonist and film critic Mark Stafford about various movies that they saw at this year's London Film Festival. However, first up is Virginie's interview with Keir Lajanis, the writer and co-editor of a new book about the satanic panic phenomenon from the 1980s when authorities from across the world blamed strange goings-on and general hijinks of teenagers to satanic cults and other esoteric malign influences. So the first book you edited and published was about kids in film, Mm -hmm. and your new one is about 1980s cultural phenomenon. Why did you choose to focus on this? 
Well, I mean, we definitely wanted to do something that was the polar opposite of kid power. So that was, you know, we wanted to show people that our book brand is sort of, you know, diverse and covering all these different sorts of things. But also the co-editor, Paul Korup, and, and I lived through this period. And so it had a personal meaning for us. Uh, we both were, were kids in the 70s and becoming teenagers in the 80s. And so this sort of cultural hysteria really affected a lot of the things that we were interested in, you know, like aggressive music and horror films and role-playing games, you know, but it was definitely the, the type of stuff that was targeting our interests at that age, so we felt it, and and uh, it had been a while since there had been a book about the satanic panic, so we wanted to revisit it. It seems that every time you do a book, there's a personal point of departure. I mean, it was like that was House of Psychotic Women, mm-hmm. Kid Power, I think there's a, an element where it was about things that you had seen in your childhood and all yeah. that. So is, is that an essential element for you to, to have the desire to actually make a book and publish a book? The idea for the brand is not that every book we come out with is going to have some connection to my childhood, <laughs> but it has happened, you know, like in, the, in all the books that I've worked on and actually even articles I write for other magazines and websites and stuff, that does tend to happen where I end up inserting myself in the story, whether I like it or not. But yeah, it's sort of worked out. I think I'm, you know, obviously I'm working through certain (laughs) things and I want to revisit certain things so that I can sort of figure them out because, you know, as a writer and as a person, it helps me to do that. But eventually I will write a book that has nothing to do with me. (laughs) (laughs) How do you explain this, this paranoia that started in the 80s? What were the factors behind it? Um, well, I think that it started a bit earlier, you know, it started in the late 60s. We, I mean, we refer to the satanic panic as the 80s, 1980 to 1990, at least in North America. But it's sort of the seeds were sown as far back as the 60s when you had the, the founding of the Church of Satan. You had Rosemary's Baby and all the sort of religious horror films that followed in its wake. But also Rosemary's Baby coincided with sort of a change culturally, and same with the founding of the Church of Satan. It was There was a change culturally happening where people were looking for alternate religions. There were women who were suddenly deciding they didn't want to be married and they didn't necessarily want to have children. And these things ended up coming out in a lot of the horror films of the time and stuff. You know, a lot of them are dealing with anxieties about spirituality. A lot of them are dealing with anxieties about women who don't want to fulfill a normal role of being a wife and mother. And in real life, a part of this was that, you know, you had the all kinds of sort of smaller marginal religions popped up in the late 60s, early 70s, as people started looking for spiritual connections that were that were not Catholic, that were not sort of the predominant normative Christian religion. And so you had even splinter of Christian groups like Jesus People USA, and you had people who were Christian end times religions and stuff. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have neo-paganism, you have Satanism, Wiccans, you know, like all kinds of stuff like this. And, uh, People were investigating a lot of this stuff so that by the time the 1980s came around, when the satanic panic really kicked into gear, it was very easy for people to believe that this stuff could be happening because they just spent an entire decade watching their neighbors experiment with witchcraft and whatever. And so when people were saying there's this vast network of Satanists that are at work, it was easier for people to believe it because of that. And so what happened in the 1980s was that the fear basically was that there was this huge network where Satanists were politicians, they were musicians in the music industry, they were running daycare centers, they were, they were basically behind everything, and they had a goal, and their goal was to target your children through all different things, through games, toys, music, anything that was like a part of youth culture basically got wrapped up in this 
where parents started to fear that that Satanists were using heavy metal music or using Dungeons and Dragons to try to coerce their children over to the dark side, you know. The Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies, London, we just did a class on the Satanic Panic where we had a few of the authors uh, in person talking about it, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, also during this period in the early 80s, you had, you know, there was a huge backlash against second wave feminism and against women working and leaving their children in daycares. And, you know, this was a huge part of it that was not talked, you know, it wasn't necessarily openly talked about at the time, but it's pretty obvious in retrospect that this was going on. There was this return to conservatism in the 80s, and they really wanted women to be back at home, back taking care of the kids. After this decade of, you know, hedonism and everything, like in the 70s, People were like, all right, let's get it back on track now. But unfortunately, the reality of it was there's lots of divorce. There were tons of single mothers that were working. And there was a proliferation of daycare centers. And the satanic panic sort of started there. That was sort of a key site for the beginning of the hysteria was the daycare center. Those were the first places that sort of came under under fire, you know, being part of this satanic network. And, and some of the, the films that you, you referred to in your introduction from the 60s and 70s were about those anxieties about the changing nature of women's roles and, and also kids. Yeah. Would you say there was an equivalent in the 80s of, of films that sort of uh, conveyed those anxieties as well? Would you say, you know, there was a, what, what is for you the Rosemary's baby of the 80s and, you know, influenced by that, that satanic panic phenomenon? I mean, a lot of the movies that stick out for me in the 80s that are related to the satanic panic are horror movies, you know, and they're not necessarily about women as much as they're about teenagers, you know, so you get you get a lot of uh, heavy metal themed horror films in the 80s that are dealing uh, specifically with issues about the satanic panic and backmasking and all this types of stuff. But as far as a film about specifically about women's roles, I mean, the, the stuff I'm thinking of is made for television. You know, there's like tons of biopics that were case studies of a lot of these types of stories, you know. And it was, yeah, it was kind of interesting that like, the, you know, made for television movies obviously started in the 60s, but they were pretty big by the early 80s, you know, and they were really targeting female audiences, a lot of them. And it was essentially a North American phenomenon. Yeah, it's it started in North America. It started pretty much in Canada with the book Michelle Remembers, which is a paperback book about a woman who undergoes therapy and has these uncovers memories from 20 years earlier of being a child and being in this prolonged satanic ritual. The book was later proven to be fraudulent. But yeah, so it's a, it's a thing that was huge in North America and it still continues. The reason I refer to the 80s as the satanic panic is because it's the biggest period where there was secular families and secular audiences buying into it uh, in communities that, you know, in more devout religious communities, those fears never went away. They've always been there. And and so in, in North America, the satanic panic continues in religious communities. But in the 1990s was when it started to move overseas a bit more. So the 80s part of the phenomena is North American, but in the 90s, it came over to Britain and to Australia and to uh, South Africa. So I don't know about how it went into non-English speaking territories, but it definitely had a counterpart in all the English speaking territories of the world a bit later than North America. Mm-hmm. And among the contributions to the book, because it's a collection of, of uh, essays, was there something that surprised you or, or that you were that you didn't know about? I mean, the biggest surprise for me was sort of just like how much I'd forgotten 
how much of it had to do with little kids, you know, and, you know, because I was remember, you know, what I remembered about the satanic panic had a lot more to do with teenagers. And a lot of it was easier to sort of look back on and laugh at now, you know, like as being very silly. But when you start reading all these stories and you realize how much of it actually had to do with children and, you know, the idea of child abuse and whether or not to believe children when they say they're being abused, you know. So it actually got very, very heavy. Like it was depressing <laughs> to work on, you know, because even though we only have certain case studies that in the book that are dealing with that topic, you end up re researching so much of it because even as the editors of the book, we still had to fact check everything that people were writing. And so we ended up having to become experts in the same topics that our authors were writing about, you know. And then other than that, it was actually a real pleasure to have this guy, Dave Canfield, write an article. He was a, a member of Jesus People USA. He was a member for 30 years, right up until maybe five months ago or something. So his personal anecdotes about the expose of Mike Warnke, who was one of these uh, famous evangelists. He was like an evangelist and a comedian who claimed to be a former satanic high priest. And I didn't know that I knew somebody that had actually worked on the expose of this guy. So that was really cool because he had all this firsthand knowledge. He worked for Cornerstone Magazine, which was the magazine that's run by Jesus People USA, which was an investigative journalistic magazine that was run out of their compound or whatever you want to call it in Chicago. And so that was really fun. And then also um, Forrest Jackson, another one of the authors, also had a personal experience with Bob Larson. Actually, Bob Larson is still very active. You know, he has, he goes and he teaches an exorcism course online and he goes around doing all kinds of personal appearances and stuff like this. He's a really funny personality. So one of our authors uh, used to spar with him in his talk radio show days, you know, so Bob Larson had a radio show and Forrest Jackson would constantly call and harass him using various fake names and stuff like that. And he recorded everything. So he's actually got transcripts of some of the calls in the in the book. It's yeah, it's just like it's a real mix of people, you know, there's Satanists, there's Christians, there's lapsed Satanists, lapsed Christians, you know, all different sorts of people that, that brought something unique to the book and I think it's a pretty rounded picture of it all. And is uh, the depressing aspect that you were talking about earlier the reason why you decided to finish with Joe Dante's The Burbs well part of why we finished with The Burbs is because we we were going chronologically the book the book goes fairly chronologically but we wanted to sort of end a bit more on an up note but also a big part of why The Burbs works is that it's you know it, it comes at the end of a cycle and just like all other types of genres and everything at the end of every cycle there's a joke there's a punchline <laughs> And the burbs is sort of that punchline for the satanic panic, you know, because every cycle starts to make fun of itself by the end. And the burbs is actually really cool because it works completely on its own if you know nothing about the satanic panic. But it's also kind of a skewering of the satanic panic and addresses certain issues about like the, you know, the idea that Tom Hanks is this guy who's so convinced that his neighbors are satanic cannibals that him and his friends completely destroy their neighborhood trying to prove this. And then, you know, the talk shows come in, you know, like the Geraldo show is on its way at the end of the movie and all this kind of stuff. And you know that this cycle, they live in this little cul-de-sac and you know that this little microcosm of what's just happened is now going to go bigger. You know, like it's not the end at the end of that story. It's like, oh, now Geraldo's coming and this hysteria is going to spread to other neighborhoods and stuff, you know. So it's kind of making fun of like how quickly the, that hysteria can spread. For more information about Satanic Panic, Pop Culture Paranoia in the 1980s, 
by Keir Lajanis and Paul Kurope, please go to spectacularoptical.ca. That's S-P-E-C-T-A-C-U-L-A-R optical.ca. Next up, here's Virginie and Mark Stafford talking about the films they saw at this year's London Film Festival. So Mark, one of the most anticipated films this year at the London Film Festival was High Rise, the Ben Wheatley adaptation of J.G. Ballard's uh, novel. What did you think of it? I thought it was amazing, but it is one of those films where I walked straight out of it and I wanted to see it again in that I was sat there and I was just so startled by how it's put together and how it's performed and how brilliant Amy Jump's screenplay was and blah, 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 and all the visuals and the editing and whatever. I wasn't entirely sure whether I was following the allegory of the breakdown of society and whatever. I mean, it's there's nods in it to Nicholas Rogue movies. There's a lot of kind of Lindsay Anderson. It kind of reminded me of Britannia Hospital in places. It's just kind of an incredible smorgasbord of amazing things. The attention to detail is amazing. He sets it, strangely enough, in some kind of late 70s netherworld. There's um, Abba's SOS reappears about three or four times on the soundtrack. In a fantastic cover version. Yeah, in a fantastic cover version. Pat Mills' action comic makes a tiny appearance in one blip script, but which would tell you exactly what year it was, because that only survived for a tiny amount of time before it was banned. There's missteps along the way, there's kind of stuff that's wrong with it, but I thought the screenplay does an incredible job of making sense out of a quite intractable and odd book. I mean, she's got to come up with characters and motivations and things to actually happen, and she does that brilliantly. Towards the end of it, I'm watching it with this just grin on my face because they're having these most logical conversations in the most insane of circumstances, and everything's burning and everything's falling apart, and they're still... The rich people are still scrapping about who's in control and who's in... (laughs) You know, who's in power and how their little society is organised. It's, um, it's a blast. I mean, I thought it was extraordinary. But I thought it was an, an, an amazing achievement, especially considering how difficult it is to, to adapt Ballard at, yeah. in film. Like, it's very difficult. And I think he, he did the best job that could possibly <laughs> be hoped for under the circumstances. Yeah. I can't really pick many, many holes. Like I say, I need to see this thing again. I Just thought there was something slightly off with the pacing at various points. Where I thought something was not working quite right, but mm. it all kind of came together in the end. I just thought that ending was yes. just absolutely fantastic. And it Very looks striking. beautiful. I mean, it looks absolutely fantastic. It it's got... The building is great. Yeah, which I was never quite sure of the model or CGI or this or that. It was beautifully framed, beautifully shot. There's there's all these weird little recurring metaphors. They're like close-ups of men dancing in very testosterone-crazy <laughs> ways. You know, performances are great. I mean, like this... That, that kind of great British cast thing again, where he's used Reese Shearsmith. I mean, this time Tom Huddleston appears as the main guy. There's no appearance by Michael Smiley, who's in every... Ben Wheatley film apart from this, which makes me wonder whether he's done something horribly wrong. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a fantastic thing. It's, yeah. it's fantastic as a ballad adaptation. It's fantastic as a sort of like seventies time capsule as well. I thought. I mean, the the seventies supernatural revolutionary male yeah. is brilliantly. Yeah, described. I can't remember who plays the guy Wilder, but he basically he's a walking heap of testosterone with a kind of George <laughs> Best moustache, and he's ah. Uh, 
foul and horrifying, but at the same time, he's he's the driver of the revolution. <laughs> he's driver of the plot in in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a brave, very brave film to do, and I think he's uh, uh, yeah. that doesn't disappoint for me. No. Not at all. I mean, I think it's one of those books where I first read it and I, I could picture scenes in my head. Everybody I know who's read it pictures scenes in the head. It's the J.G. Bella one, probably this and Concrete Island, about the only two you can think of actually adapting into, apart from the autobiographies, actually adapting into film. But both of them, you're thinking, but how the hell would they do it? I think he's done a, an ama- that they've done an amazing job. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a great piece of work. Yeah. Okay, all right. And uh, then the other film that everybody was talking about um, was The Witch, the feature debut of um, American director Robert Eggers. And you like that, I think. I absolutely love this. I think if you watch it as a horror movie, you might be slightly weirded out in that it's it's it's, it's very kind of art house in its pacing, at least in the beginning, and its framing. Kind of reminded me of Kelly Reinhardt's Mink's Cut-Off in that that was... That was like a Puritan verite, which is how it actually feels to be in this environment. I mean, this is all set way, way, way back in the first settlers in the States. And so you've got a family that's removed from their community, essentially because they want to carry on their own little branch of Puritan logic. But they don't see it. They don't know that the local woods have some evil presence in them, or essentially a witch and she slowly pulls the family apart one by one. They get visited by, uh, you know, she, the, the, a child disappears, but the, the mother uh, thinks that the oldest uh, child is, you know, responsible for the death of the child, and they all slightly turn inwards on each other. It's incredible to look at. It's got this incredibly gloomy look. Um, lots of um, bleached-out colours and unbleached cotton and greys and grass and absolutely horrible, twisted-looking wood. And... Stuff that looks like the, the supernatural occurrences when they come. They're proper like, proper woodcut stuff, proper stuff that seems to be taken out of the Malleus Maricarum and all that um, 1600s witchcraft stuff. So the manifestations of the supernatural are mainly through animal familiars. There's a really horrible-looking hare with very starey eyes. There's a, there's a goat called Black Philip which rears up on its hind legs at one shot and whatever. So it's all very simple. There's no... CGI to talk of apart from maybe they've removed a few wires or stuff here and there and it feels true and earthy and whatever and it, it's a brilliantly told little story I mean it's obviously it's subtitled A New England Folk Tale and it kind of follows that it's not a New England Folk Tale it's an assemblage of a whole bunch of different stuff but it so works as a creepy little kind of horror movie in its own right but as a kind of an art house kind of folky take on that folk nonsense on part of a Facebook group called Folk Horror Revival there's a whole lot of interest in this kind of area of stuff and I think this is one of those films you can add to that list of you know Blood on Saints Glory and Wicker Man and whatever and it does it absolutely right and it builds to a brilliant kind of climax and you know the second from last shot which seems to be uh, they've gone to a hell of a lot of trouble to basically recreate a Richard Dad painting which is you know bravo bravo it's amazing stuff yeah and I think another another film that had that similar kind of mix of art and horror in a completely different genre was Evolution the Lucille Hadzihalilovich yes. uh, film I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name right um, because it, 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 it feels like an art house film it's all about textures and sensations and it's very yeah. elliptical and oblique and at the same time it's, you have those moments of of, of pure horror, absolutely horrific yeah. imagery, yeah. which which work even better because there are a few of them. 
Slightly oblique like image. I mean, the second shot of that, the, the undersea, there's a shot just underneath the surface of the ocean, the second one. And I was like, going, linger on this for a while. It's the most beautiful thing I've seen. But the story of just this ocean, this island with the. There are boys and there are women, and you slowly start to think that the boys' interests aren't at the heart of the most of the most of the women, and it's got this kind of undercurrent. Yeah, of H.P. Lovecraft, especially the shadow over Innsmouth and Dagon and things like that. It's got kind of things in labs and <laughs> a certain amount of kind of medical horror, but it's all quite oblique and it's all quite. You're never quite sure what's nailed down, and you know, similar to the last film they made Innocence it's one of those films which you know, you're wondering what you're watching while you're watching it but it's it's going to linger in the memory and you know it's a fine piece of work also about 80 minutes long does not I know that's great yeah. isn't it yeah. <laughs> I thought it was very intelligent and very powerful because she does draw on all these things that you've mentioned I mean you think of aliens you think of sirens you think of yeah. all sorts of things that you, you, you've seen yeah. before that you've yeah. read about that you've seen at the cinema and it has that mythical quality but it draws on all these things to create that resonance but you're never quite sure exactly what it is that you're watching it's very elusive very mysterious no and it, it creates that atmosphere of unease and, yeah. and, and you come out and you and she did the same thing that she did in innocence where the last shot you're not quite sure whether that's good or bad yeah and and she's she's a master of ambiguity she, i don't know if what, what she's going to go on to do but this is two films in a row where and this comes up the flip side of innocence in that, that that was about a bunch of girls going through a strange process who's meaning is entirely out of their control and you know has some, some kind of sinister implications and this one it's flipped it's it's little boys being treated rather strangely by these women yeah, or maybe women yes or, yes, yes. <laughs> creatures still all about mutation and birth and those those yeah. sort of like themes run through both films yeah. in a really interesting way because they were made 10 years apart so but it's still, <laughs> yeah. that's still what she's interested in I think yeah. that's brilliant yeah Okay, let's go on to another one of your highlights from evolution to I don't know, the Nachma. The Nachma. I really liked um German film. Yeah, it's it's about girl goes to parties, takes drugs, starts seeing a little green thing hovering around her house at night and at first she's terrified of it and her therapist tells her to actually start talking to it and get in touch with it. And it's a film about, uh, at the e- in the end, about um, kind of accepting your own weirdness and accepting you, yourself for who you are. And it's about that whole adolescent thing of basically being terrified of embarrassment and strangeness. But I'm not getting over exactly how weird this film is. It's got an opening where they say, oh, you, this, the, the, you know, this film contains bichromatic noises and binaural this and whatever. It contains strobing... Um, play it loud it's then <laughs> instructs you after that and there's whole scenes which are just lit by kind of strobe light and red on one side and blue on the other and the, in the first 20 minutes you're not quite sure what's dream what's this what's that they're all these teenagers are showing stuff at people stuff on their mobile phones and some of them some of what they're showing is seen from later on in the film so it leaps back and forwards it does a whole bunch of some strange business but as it's at its center it's got a brilliant character this Tina this girl who's a bit of a kind of teenage techno bunny she's a bit of a blank at the beginning but slowly gains this amazing personality and she looks incredibly vulnerable all the way through and it's creepy and embarrassing and then 
then really good. It's got a, it's got a beautiful heart because <laughs> it feels like Casper Noe in places, and it's nice to see the Casper Noe method applied to something which is actually not just downbeat and horrible. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, that sounds good. Talking about downbeat and horrible, I think The Invitation by Karen Cousin. <laughs> yeah, I love this. Though I have to say, when I say I love it, it's got to be the most excruciating <laughs> viewing experience I've seen in ages. It's a, it's a film, you know, there's a, a guy drives to a party to see his ex-girlfriend and they had a horrible tragedy in their lives and the grief drove them apart and she's disappeared and he hasn't seen her for two years and he's got a new girl and they go back to this woman's place and she's invited a whole bunch of their old you know best friends so there's about 10 people 12 people around the table and he has the the feeling that something's wrong and something's not quite right about the whole evening and they might have, have they joined a cult are they swingers is this Scientology going to come into it or whatever and he stops noticing little things that are wrong there's a guest that isn't turning up the first drink that this guy brings out he says oh, I'm cracking open the you know the the 85 Bollinger and they're going like this This is worth 8 million dollars a bottle and he's, you know, and he's handing it around there's this whole bunch of signals this guy gets that something's nasty something's wrong and the, everybody's speaking kind of Californian therapy spree so it's like I can appreciate your anger kind of and just that by itself made me squirm in my seat. They all start playing this kind of emotional game where you have to say what you really want in the room and stuff like that. And I was going, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. And I was squirming in my seat. But that squirming kind of leads into the horror movie dynamics or whatever. And it's a really subtle movie. And it keeps turning that screw and turning that screw and turning that screw. And you kind of, because it never quite lets you know not for ages and at that whether this and this is all in the guy's head maybe he's just going nuts because of the grief maybe the nature of the evening is wearing on him but blimey does it stretch out that feeling of absolute horrible uncomfortableness about i don't know dinner parties and therapy and respecting other people's beliefs and whatever you know if, if somebody's kind of hammering you know their weird ideology down your throat how much do you, as a guest, have to put up with it before you can go, I'm out of here? Which, that's the, that you're basically screaming that in your head after about the first five minutes of this film, and then there's a whole lot more before you reach the payoff, which pays off, which really pays off. It gets, yeah, properly... Uh, I won't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to this one, which I've missed. Yeah. And uh, another little oddity from Denmark that I think you liked a lot was Men and Chicken. Yes, really odd piece of it's a kind of strange. Well, guess it's comedy. It, you know, it's got slapstick in and stuff like that. It's just a very, very odd comedy with these two brothers, one played by Mads Mikkelsen, and his compulsive as a compulsive masturbator, and his brother who can't stand his you know his brother who, who thinks he's destroyed every relationship he's ever had and um, after their dad dies their dad says you know uh, you weren't my children you're actually the son of and he names this used to be famous scientist who fell into disgrace on an island somewhere and they go out to meet their real kin and it's difficult to describe the rest of it other than it's really funny and very very odd and there's a bit of kind of I don't know it's a bit Aki Karismaki and a, a lot slapstick and actually has, has weirdly for one of those um, European films where you're kind of laughing and just going this is so odd and whatever it actually neatly ties up which I was actually a bit annoyed by <laughs> I don't expect my European cinema to make perfect sense and deliver <laughs> some kind of ending that makes sense but um, 
I can't you can't really I can't really tell you about uh, much about it other than it's full of like sort of odd really beautifully oddly detailed characters and a, a sense of absolute weirdness and a kind of there's there's quite a lot of Cronenbergian oddness turns up in like there's there's mutant animals and there's a there's a lab, there's a lab downstairs you know it's 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 great stuff yeah. right okay and the master of weirdness really is Yorgos Lantimos uh, the Greek director who gave us Dog Tooth, and he returned with the Lobster. Um, which, yeah, which played. I mean, it was in a fairly prominent slot at the festival. Yeah, um, and the, and the trailer seems to be getting lots of play on Facebook and wherever, and everybody seems to be liking the look of it, and they're right to. In that, um, it's a brilliant kind of interrogation of the nature of relationships through an absurdist lens. Yeah, that's not bad. Um, <laughs> so. Colin Farrell has just uh, broken up with his wife and it turns out that what you have to do is you get taken if this has happened to you and your relationship's broken up to a hotel where you basically have I think it's 40 days to find somebody else in your life otherwise they will, you will be turned into the animal of your choice. He chooses a lobster because apparently they live for 100 years and remain sexually active these, these, and he quite likes the sea. Um it's quite hard to get over the oddness of this. Um, there's a whole bunch of... You know, the, the hotel is beautifully detailed. Everybody wears the same kind of clothing. Um, everybody speaks throughout the film in these declarative sentences of exactly how they feel and whatever. So it makes them seem somehow like kind of five- and six-year-olds or whatever. And basically what they're saying is the kind of underlying truths of what people say in relationships is that, you know, while they're talking to some guy intelligently, they're staring at them and going, when are you going to go bold? Or, you know... or <laughs> Or you have a limp, or this kind of stuff. Um, it's extraordinary chance. Olivia Colman, Ben Whishaw, uh, great. You know, this is where Michael Smiley's turned up. He wasn't in the Ben Wakeley film, but he suddenly pops up here. Um, brilliantly used. It is one of those things where I think it's got a flaw in that all the scenes in the hotel, you have this deadline ticking down, and there's uh, it reaches a a certain point where he has to leave the hotel and suddenly it loses a sense of urgency and starts kind of flopping around a bit. And and that flopping around leaves you your mind is pinwheeling trying to work out what the metaphors are now. What why, you know, cuz cuz he ends up joining up with there's essentially the hotel is all about quickly hitching you up with a couple with another partner. When you join the people outside they are actively against there being couples in the world. They set out like a bunch of revolutionaries to sabotage other people's relationships. Um, so it's got this whole bunch of weird metaphors of you know how this all works and that down. It's yeah, great to look at as well. You know, lots of strange animals wandering around through the backgrounds. Uh, I think it's mainly Irish countryside. <laughs> um, it's I mean I don't it, like I say it's over. I think it's over long. But I think what works in it is absolutely cherishable. Um, it's beautifully performed. Colin Farrell's, yeah, it, 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 great performance as this fairly terrible, uh, kind of pudgy, kind of middle-class man. There's no, it, this is the most uncool thing he's ever done, I think. Well, at the same time, probably one of the coolest things he's ever done. It's, yeah, well worth a look. Okay, yeah. all right. And there was a fairly strong showing from America. There were quite a few... Uh, interesting independent films. I mean, we've mentioned The Witch and The Invitation, uh, but there was also Green Room, which again was yeah. something that got 
talked about uh, quite yeah. a lot in the festival circuit. And, and yeah, I loved and works really well. It's a, you know, it's a punk band. End of the tour, they're completely out of money, and they get kind of roped into you know as, as their only way of getting money to finish off this tour is to play a kind of white supremacist skinhead club, and they witness something bad there, and then everything goes to hell. Um, the reason it's great because it's basically just a siege movie. It's uh, kind of an assault on precinct thirteeny kind of affair. I mean, it resembles a lot of other things. It's the punks versus the skins versus the Nazi skins. Great. Um, Patrick Stewart plays the owner of the nightclub, really chillingly, really, really well. It has a great forward sense of momentum. This is made by the man who uh, directed Blue Ruin, so it's got a sense of scuzziness and a sense of purpose. But also, all the detail is amazing. The stickers on the back of the van are exactly of the right bands. All the bands on the soundtrack are exactly the right bands. The thanks list of the end of this film thanks everybody who means anything in US punk. And it just... Yeah, it gets all that right. And it, it delivers on, the, on just a brutal, violent level of... You know... There's somebody dies about every five minutes after a certain point, and they all die fairly quite. Early on. Yeah, yeah, fairly early on. <laughs> um, and yeah, it is. It's kind of yeah. It's kind of weird to see the guy who does Blue Room basically turning in a, a functioning popcorn movie. I'd call it. It's a functioning popcorn movie, but it's got a really scuzzy surrounding and. It's, it's very well observed, definitely. It's yeah. very tense. He, he yeah. really knows how to set up the tension and yeah. like, sort of make something really gripping and fast-paced. Um, and and I, I kind of thinking about the ending, I kind of maybe like it better now than I did before. It's, I always liked it, but it was just that I was expecting something a bit more. Like you say, it's kind of like mm. it, it is a sort of you know very efficient, violent yeah. thriller, essentially. Yes. Um, I, I did like the fact that the horror came from the real, that it's really the sort of neo-Nazi white supremacist horror and not yeah. something supernatural or anything like that. Oh, no, that. no, no. So yeah. I did like that um, because I went into the film not knowing much about it, so right, I expected right. you know, <laughs> something supernatural. But, uh, but that was a good thing that it wasn't. But then thinking about the ending, you, you, you could see it also as a sort of like... Um, that the the protagonists end up realizing that what had scared them so much and what was very very chilling mm. is actually not much once it has has been vanquished. Yeah. I think you know this ending is sort of like oh that's what scared us so much. And yeah. Well, when you see it there, <laughs> it do, it's not. It doesn't seem so scary anymore. Yeah. So I think that yeah maybe there was there was something going on a bit more than what I initially saw. Something about. Mm. The sort of the the perception of um, things that are presented as absolutely chilling yeah. and uh, things that you yeah. cannot vanquish, basically. Yeah. Well, she got to remember that Nazis are idiots. <laughs> 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 Apart from Patrick Stewart, who should be feared. <laughs> so yes, so that was Green Room. Um, I think you also really liked uh, James White. Yeah. Um, Beautiful little indie film, all done in close. Oh, it's basically a story of an anti-social idiot guy. Don't really like him at first. He drinks too much. He sleeps around. He doesn't. He's un- disloyal. Basically, seems to be mainly concerned with himself and his own life, and, and not really giving a damn about anybody else. And then his mum gets cancer, 
um, in the middle of a, some holiday. And you know how these disease movies go, and you know how Hollywood would treat them, and this one doesn't, and it feels true and raw and emotional. And there's whole scenes towards the end which, you know, reduce me to absolute bits. It's a brilliantly made film. Shot at one of the first... Oh God, at least three quarters of an hour, it seems to be mainly in close-up on this guy's face, which is, you know, an extraordinary way to do things, and slowly opens up it's, and turns it basically into a two-hander um, in a tiny little apartment somewhere in New York, and it's it's a brilliant thing. It's a, it's a beautiful piece of work. All right. Does he have much bigger film, Hulk, I guess, yeah. but yeah. a sort of... Uh, Thriller. ...fairly pessimistic view of America? <laughs> It's, it kind of works in the same way that, say, John Borman's Hell in the Pacific basically replayed the entire of the Second World War with two guys, Lee Melvin and Tishora Mifune. Um This works as a kind of psycho-thriller, uh, but it also clearly has an eye on being a kind of allegory about the relationship between the United States and Mexico. You've got a bunch of Mexican immigrants, uh, their truck broke down, they go in under the wire and they have to they decide they're going to have to go through what they call the badlands to get to the United States well they're already in the United States but waiting on the other side is this guy in a truck with a dog swigging Jack Daniels and he just kills them off one by one with a rifle and it basically turns into one of those you know it's just like a survival horror movie or a thriller or whatever you know on a deliverance level but also has these nice allegorical overtones of you know everything the guy the American says is you know welcome to the land of the free he says after shooting about 20 odd people uh, and everything seems to be kind of double edged it's got a, you, know, you know it works on you know it's two levels very well I mean it, it's a basically you know it's a kind of nail biter for most of it it's a lot of running and the desert is, it looks astonishing and the desert looks incredibly hostile in it it's not one of those like beautifully sweetly shot environments it just looks entirely full of unpleasant things I mean you don't see any else of America other than this incredibly hostile environment you don't see the authority you see one shot of the the police turn up early in the film and then are entirely useless throughout the rest of it and, and drive off into the distance and whatever so yeah it's good Right. I liked it. Yeah. Okay, let's end with a completely different film and uh, the sort of wild card of the festival in a way. Uh, Guy Madden's The Forbidden Room, mm. which was shown uh, at the IMAX. Yeah. Um, so that was a crazy deluge of, uh, <laughs> of um, beautiful narrative fragments, but completely demented, um, yes. on the biggest screen in Britain. <laughs> How was that for you? Uh, yeah, I loved Guy Madan. This is too much Guy Um I kind of think if it tapped it in about kind of 70 minutes, I'd be walking out of it thinking, that's the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. But at, but yes, I forgot two, that it was, yeah, 133 oh minutes. Oh my exactly, God. Yeah, yeah and then, um, <laughs> it's a whole series of fragments, you know, something that starts off as, as a story in one of, uh, you know, you'll have a bunch of guys in the submarine and they start telling a story and then you'll see that story and that'll peel off into another story and eventually you'll come back to the bit in the submarine. There's a whole sequence which is just basically a Sparks video as far as I can tell. <laughs> You know, and it's all shot on low, you know, as Guy Madan does, it all looks like it's shot on lo fi in somebody's garage. It looks beautiful. It looks like a series of 
degraded film stocks. He does little bits of CGI, which I disapprove of. Guy Madan should not do CGI. Well, he's embracing new technology. I think, that, I think that's good. I think that's good. You know, because, yes, okay, but I think that's something brilliant when someone who's so used to filming in a certain mm. way actually tries to be adventurous yeah. and tries to do something with this new technology, not just because it's cheap, although that's the reason, yeah. but also because you have to, you know, do do something with the new technology that's available to you rather yeah. than try and like stay stuck in the past. I think I think that's that's something to be admired. <laughs> <laughs> Plus that old film stops running out. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's exactly. <laughs> But uh, there were bits of bits that reminded me of Decasia of course and, and yes. you mentioned that in one of the talks. Um, I thought it was this stunning, amazing, insane beauty. But Slightly too much of it, especially on such a big screen. I kind of wanted to see it on a normal screen because I thought yeah. that would make it much I, more digestible. I, I, I watched it on the smaller screen of the NFT one, and it's probably a bit more digestible. Yes, yes. Uh, there, that, there's a lot See, of I cherishing. Have to it, too much. Yeah, I'm like Matthew Elmerich turns up yes. in this, and you know, there's and Charlotte Rampling and Geraldine Chaplin. I mean, yeah. he's got those wonderful actors. And um, and and I I thought it was great that he was trying to do something. Uh, he was experimenting, experimenting, experimenting with the narrative structure and yeah. doing the story within the story within the story. Yeah, I, I loved all the sort of fragments colliding together. Uh, visually, I thought it was it yeah. was just absolutely stunning. Um, but just a little bit less of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, know, the first time you think, like, it's exhilarating when the, you know, the guy from the lumberjack story first turns up in the submarine and starts telling his bit and whatever. But by the end, you're going, oh, hang on, who? What? And just, where? And, uh, you know, think, there's always a moment where the guy brings out the big book of climaxes and part of, <laughs> me, part of me was just going, oh, my God. And, I love that, especially yeah. the exploding brain. Yes. That was yeah, fantastic. What a yeah. way to end the film. Um, but, um, but yeah, and I have to say that once the sort of side discomfort at watching it um, at the IMAX yeah. was over, all that remained was just pure, pure thrills and pleasure at, yeah. at the whole experience. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just the life of his the, like absolute absurd brain. He, the way he, I, I don't know where half of this stuff comes from. It always feels like he's just he's found some you know old film and you're watching it. Oh, you know, where the the bit at the beginning there's got a framing sequence of how to take a bath. It actually feels like an old instructional film until it like properly. <laughs> Until you've seen quite a bit of it, and then you start going, "Oh my God, he made this all himself!" Because the, you know, it really looks like something from the late sixties, early seventies, with this terrible old kind of Bush belt comedian telling terrible jokes, and ah. and the whole film feels like that. A whole bunch of discovered little things he's found in archives somewhere, except they're not <laughs> clearly, or some of them maybe somewhere in there. There may be a whole bunch of stuff that I don't recognise. Yes, but it's, like it's exhilarating. It's absolutely fantastic, except uh, it's nice. too much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, well, let's end with that. Okay. For more information about last month's London Film Festival, and there's information about which films from the London Film Festival will be going on tour around the UK, please go to www.bfi dot org dot uk stroke lff and films that virginie and mark have just been discussing include high rise the witch evolution de nachtma the invitation men and chicken the lobster green room 
James White, Desierto, and The Forbidden Room. The Lobster is still screening in art house cinemas around the UK. High Rise and The Witch are still doing the rounds of various film festivals. Another film festival that The Witch has just shown at is the Leeds International Film Festival. This continues until Thursday the 19th of November, and the last half of the festival also coincides with Thought Bubble, the Leeds International Comic Book Festival. So if you're a fan of either medium, it's a city well worth travelling to in the middle of November. For more information about the Leeds International Film Festival, please go to leedsfilm.com, and for more information about Thought Bubble, please go to thoughtbubblefestival.com. This year's Cine Access Festival will be taking place between the 12th and 14th of November at the University of Brighton. This year's cult film director that the festival is celebrating is William Fruitt, who for children of the 80s is probably best known for directing most of the TV series Goosebumps, but back in the 70s he was also a classic slasher director. And Cine Access will be showing his classic Death Weekend, followed by a Skype interview with the director. Cine Access also features a crossover with the University of Brighton's comic festival, Graphic Brighton, as 2000 AD auteur Pat Mills will be in discussion with film and pop culture historian Martin Barker, talking about Mills' infamous comic Action, which was all but banned in 1976 due to its infamous content. The pair will be also discussing 2000 AD with artist Jim McCarthy, who has recently returned to the comic to ink a new series of Bad Company. Tickets for the entire academic conference cost £60, and for a screening pass, which includes the Pat Mills panel, it's £10. To buy tickets for Cine Excess, please go to tinyurl.com excess tickets. The Electric Sheep Film Magazine podcast was recorded by Alex Fitch and Virginie Selavy, was edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, and you can find all previous episodes by going to www.electricsheepmagazine.co.uk stroke events. The next broadcast episode of the Electric Sheep Film Show on Resonance FM is on Wednesday the 18th of November. And in that episode, we have live on air as our guest in the studio, Graham Humphreys, an old school film poster painter who is known for his poster designs for The Evil Dead, Dream Demon, and Santa Sangre. A new coffee table book about his work, Drawing Blood, has just been released, and Virginie and I will be talking to Graham about his work so far. Also, London International Animation Festival director Nag Vladimirsky will be on the show talking about what to expect from this year's selection of cartoons that are screening at the Barbican in early December, And also, you'll hear my interview with director Peter Strickland, best known for his cinema work, such as Barbarian Sound Studio and The Duke of Burgundy, who has recently turned his attention to radio, doing a new adaptation of Nigel Neal's The Stone Tape in 3D audio for the BBC. And to play out, concluding our Halloween theme, we have The Witch, performed by The Sonics, available on the album Nuggets, original artefacts from the first psychedelic era. Thanks for listening.
she'll put you down Cause she's an evil too Say she's the way She got a long back of hair And a big black car I know what you're thinking But you won't get far She's gonna make you live Cause she's the witch Well, she walks around Ain't at night Most kind of people Sleep and tie If you hear a knock On your door You better sing it away This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.